Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Welcome back. Well, welcome back, you guys, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Chris coming at you with another solo episode. Today we're going to get back into uh, Gandalf the Red, which has been an interesting exploration uh, of Carl Jung. Because for those who have um, for those who have listened all the way to uh, uh, you know to the present through the series, you kind of know this is one of his most obscure writings. Um, the kind of thing that the kind of thing that you would publish after your death so that nobody makes fun of you for it, uh, especially if you're trying to be a serious um, academic, you know, and Carl Jung was. Uh, but the Red Books, it's just mystical and weird and, uh, you know, in all kinds of interesting ways. I, I'm absolutely loving it. Um, I know I've said this many times before, but in the book, Carl Jung is doing this um, practice, something that he calls active imagination. And what he's doing is how do I put this? What he's doing is something like meditating and something like dreaming at once. And it's something that he can do, uh, that he trained himself to do kind of on command. Um, and it involves letting images like you might see in a fantasy or in a dream pop into his head. And then, and then he has the ability to kind of interact with these, with these images. Um, he can't exactly control the narrative, he can't control what happens. It's it's like a dream in that way, but he can he can interact with the images that appear as dreams. And a lot of times it's landscapes and buildings, but it's people. And he talks to the people, and some of them he refers to as spirits, and he talks to them. And it's weird, but it's very cool because the way Carl Jung describes it is that the spirits and the forms that he's interacting with in his, in his fantasies and this active imagination that he's doing, uh, it is, well, it's part of his psyche, right? All of these spirits and all of these people and all of these images that are coming from his unconscious. So Carl Jung sees them as parts of himself. He sees them as parts of himself that he, he hasn't necessarily integrated they're unconscious parts of himself. So he's exploring kind of, he's doing this inner exploration, trying to figure out what else is there that he hasn't discovered yet. And that's a weird way of putting it. What treasure lies buried in his psyche? What parts of himself are there that he hasn't yet discovered? And I think that's very interesting, super interesting, really. Um, I just had a Twitter conversation not long ago 
where uh, I was talking about exactly this um, active imagination business, this sort of daydreaming kind of thing, but it, but it, you know, more, more complex than that. And somebody on Twitter was telling me um, that it was good that I was looking at that, but it wasn't the end all be all of exploring the psyche that there are other things, um, other practices and things that you can do uh, to go deeper than Jung. And I, I don't know exactly what he meant by that. Um, the way he explained it was something like the psyche that you're tapping into when you do what Jung does is yours, you know? And so the unconscious that you experience um, in that practice is yours. And that there's a way there's a way of doing the same thing, but rather doing it with your own psyche, doing it with sort of the cosmic psyche, doing it with um, cosmic consciousness, doing it with, with God consciousness, something like that. And um, I, I was pretty intrigued by that, uh, so I was asking the guy questions, and he tells me about a, about a guy named Rudolf Steiner. I never heard of Rudolf Steiner. Um, he died, I think, um, right around 1925. The book that was recommended to me, he published, I think it was in 1914 or something like that, maybe uh, right around the First, first World War. Um, so I, I bought the book, I started reading it and, uh, it's pretty interesting. I haven't gotten too far in, so I'll let you know what I, what I find in it. Uh, but I was surprised to hear that, um, that, uh, Steiner was a self-professed, uh, clairvoyant, you know? Um, so I usually take those things with a grain of salt, but when I started reading it, I noticed that, um, there's a lot of philosophy in it, you know, it's a lot of, um, well, I, I mean, I can't give credence to the logic. Uh, I haven't read it all the way, so I'm going to reserve judgment on it. But um, but there's, there's real philosophy in there. I mean, the guy was thinking deeply, so I don't want to write him off as a, um, um, a quack, a kook, you know. But generally speaking, if somebody says they're clairvoyant, that's kind of where my mind goes. But I'm going to reserve judgment. I'll read it. I'll let you know what I come up with. And I'll let you know if, in fact, uh, Steiner's technique is any different or any better than uh, Carl Jung's. Um, I will say that I have tried Carl Jung's approach, uh, and I've done that active imagination uh, many times. A lot of times I do it right before bed, before I go to sleep, um, just trying to see what kind of images come to my mind. And I'm not very good at it yet. Um, I'm not very good at it yet. But I will tell you that I see faces a lot of times... Um, faces and torsos, like almost like photographs that will appear in my mind. And they're not people that I know. They're detailed faces. They're unique individual human beings, but not none that I recognize. And I think that's kind of interesting. So I don't know what that means. Just, um, you know, as far as active imagination goes, that's what we're going to be talking about today. So, so more to come on that. Um, today I read two visions, so two more of the visions um, that Carl Jung had doing this active imagination um, that were pretty interesting. The first one is kind of familiar. It's going to sound like some that we've already read. The second one's a little bit unique. Um, so without further ado, I'll jump into this. Just picture for me uh, Carl Jung sitting at a desk. This is the old sage with the gray hair. Um, very wise man, uh, thought very deeply about the human condition in psychology. Uh, he sits down at his desk. Um, you know, I don't know. I like to imagine a, a bowl of water or a crystal ball or something on the, on the desk, but, uh, yeah, he, he's, um, going 
within, right? He's closing his eyes. He's focusing his attention on his own consciousness, on his own psyche. And he's waiting to see what comes to him. And um, in the first vision today, um, I'm going to call One of the Lowly. That's the, the chapter title. It kind of starts, I'll give you a, a little bit of an introduction because uh, paraphrasing this is easier than, than um, reading your quotes. So, so it goes something like this. Young sees a vision of a poor, dirty peasant. He's traveling alone. And he's sick. And he's desperate. But he's also strangely optimistic. So Young is talking to him, right? Now, this is a fantasy image of this dirty traveler, sick, dirty peasant person. And Young can talk to him in this fantasy, in this vision. And Young marvels at just how petty this person is. It's almost like they represent, you know, pettiness itself, you know, um, destitution. That's the word that Young uses. And uh, this, this destitute man has all the same aspirations and hopes that any man has, you know, the best laid plans. But he doesn't do anything, it doesn't seem to achieve them. So this is the kind of person we're dealing with. Somebody who, you know, had all the same potential as any human being in the beginning. But through lack of effort and through, you know, I don't know, uh, becoming satisfied with, with how little he has, he just became decrepit. And, uh, I mean, a failure. You can see that image in, you know, um, the kind of... Uh, homeless, uh, drug addict, person on the street kind of thing. This is what comes to my mind. This is the kind of person that he's, that his vision has uh, brought brought to his attention. And they're traveling together, you know. So Young decides he's going to buy this guy dinner. He, so they they stop at an inn. You know, he buys him a meal. He 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 buys him a room. He he lets the guy you know uh, on his dime have a good meal and a good night's sleep. And right in the middle of the night, he hears noises. The guy's in the room next to him. He hears gurgling noises, and, you know, it doesn't sound good. So Young gets up, and he goes, and he, he opens the door, and he finds the man dead. He's covered in blood. And Young gets this guy's blood all over his hands, you know, and he's confronted by this dirty peasant that he doesn't think a whole lot of, right? Um and now he's covered in his blood. And so this is the image. This is what opens up the vision. And Young says, a destitute, excuse me, a destitute joins me and wants admittance into my soul. And I am thus not destitute enough. Where was my destitution when I did not live it? I join myself with him since I need him. He makes living light and easy. He leads to the depths where I can see the heights. I therefore need the bottom most for my renewal. All right, so this is what this is what opens up after this vision, after this scene has happened. And Carl Jung says some interesting stuff, but this is where I think you're going to maybe see some familiar elements. One of the things Carl Jung said, and I haven't been able to find where, but Jordan Peterson has quoted this many times, that Jung said, people don't see God or they don't find God because they don't look low enough. And if that sounds strange to you, strap in, because we're, we're going to get into this. 
All right, so he says some stuff here. He says that uh, this destitute person um, showed up in his vision because Young needed something that that destitute person represents. There's some part of Young that he's not accepting, that he's repressing, that he's burying down and pretending doesn't exist in, within him because he doesn't want to think of himself as a lowly peasant. He doesn't want to think of himself as having anything in common with this man who doesn't accomplish anything, doesn't do anything to achieve his goals and just lets himself become dirty and starving and sick. He doesn't want to think of himself as anything like that. And that's when he says, a destitute joins me and wants admittance to my soul. That is the reason that this destitute man appears in the vision at all. Because it's a part of Jung's unconscious. It's a part of Jung himself that he, that he refuses to accept. That he intentionally, willfully ignores and buries down. And he says, I am not destitute enough. Which means there's something that this destitute man has or represents that Jung needs. Then he asks a question that's pretty interesting. He says, where was my destitution when I did not live it? So whatever it is that this destitute man represents, that's important that Jung needs to, that needs, he needs to integrate, he needs to understand is valuable. Where is it when he buries it down and pretends it doesn't exist? Right? We know the destitute man exists. We, we know that image exists within Jung because it pops up in his fantasy. So where has it been? It's been buried down deep in Jung's unconscious. It's something that he's, that he's repressed. And so it's sort of, quote-unquote, disappeared, but it hasn't disappeared. And so Jung says, I join myself with him since I need him. So now he's admitting that. There's something about this destitute man and what he represents that Jung needs to complete himself, to be true to himself. And then he tells us what that is by saying, he makes living light and easy. So you can imagine somebody who doesn't, who doesn't bear responsibility, who doesn't bear a burden... Well, their, their life is light and easy. And there's some part of that that's good. Now, maybe not all the time, but some part of that is necessary. You can't, be, you can't take your t yourself too seriously. You have to make some part of your life light and easy. You have to enjoy being alive, for lack of a better word. And that's something that you can imagine the sagely, scholarly, you know, guys studying and just consuming books and thinking all the time, all by himself, you know. That that's something you might not do. You might not have a light and easy time. You know, not even a little bit in your life. And then Jung says that this destitute image that he's encountering, it leads to the depths where I can see the heights. And this is going to come up again. But there's something about this that's true. There's something about, if you can imagine somebody who, somebody who has a, serious challenge. Maybe it's a drug habit. Maybe they're trying to lose weight. You know, I don't know. Just any, any sort of challenge you can imagine. And they're not succeeding. And sometimes people have to, well, what do we say? They have to hit rock bottom. They have to find their depths. They have to find how low they can be, how low they can go. And those are things people don't like to think about. That's why you don't make eye contact with beggars and homeless people on the street because you don't want to confront them because you don't want to imagine that, that that could be you under different circumstances. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about. So you, you get to rock bottom, and then you can't deny that anymore. 
then you have to face reality and your own reality. Those are the depths. And when you get there, that's the place where you can see the heights. That's the place where you can see a better path, what you might become, a different way for you. And sometimes we ignore that because it's hard, right? We, we pretend there aren't heights or that they're not reachable. But when you get to the very bottom, you can't help but see the heights. because Why? Because there's nowhere left to fall. All you can see is the heights. And then Jung says, that's why I need my bottom most for my renewal. He needs to become this destitute man in some way so that he can realistically know what he is, how low he can go, how terrible you know his potential is. And that will help him to see where he should be going, you know, steering away from those sorts of things. All right, he continues. He says, a man who can no longer climb down from his heights is sick. And he brings himself and others to torment. If you have reached your depths, then you see your heights as if unreachable. Since secretly you would prefer not to reach it. It is a good thing that you have almost become the other nature that makes you speak this way. Okay, so a little bit more of the same. Um, a man who can no longer climb to his uh, depths is sick, right? And then he said that when people reach their depths and they see the heights, you know, when people have hit rock bottom, that they will avoid it. They will avoid the heights, even though they're looking at the path forward. They're looking at a way for them to continue to live, to have value and meaning, to continue to exist. And they shy away from it. The light's too bright, you know. They, they uh, deflect their other eyes and attention away from it. And then Young says, they act like it's unreachable, since secretly you would prefer not to reach it. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that when you see what you can become, you know it requires work and sacrifice. Two things people don't like to do. We want to avoid work wherever possible. Avoid sacrifice wherever possible. And people who can't sacrifice and refuse to work are, as Jung says, sick. Then he says, at your low point, you are no longer distinct from your fellow beings. You climb into the holy stream of common life, where you are no longer an individual, but a fish among fish, a frog among frogs. <laughs> I like that. I like that. It's interesting. It's, it's bringing to it to our attention that there are maybe two types of life that we live. And we've talked about this before because human beings have two types of experience. We have consciousness and we have unconsciousness. And our experience is both. And it's something like this that I think he's pointing to. When he says, when you're at your low point, you know, when you find your depths, you're no longer distinct from your fellow beings, right? You no longer th hold yourself above them, if that makes sense. You don't have you don't have grounds to be an elitist. You don't have grounds to 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 lord it over anyone, right? When you reach rock bottom, then you become you become just like everyone else. Human, lowly, just like every other human being. You can't pretend that you stand on laurels and set yourself apart or climb up on a pedestal. You can't pretend that anymore. 
And he describes that by saying, you climb into the holy stream of common life where you are no longer an individual. Okay, so there's some sort of a collective life and then there's some sort of an individual life. And we live them both, you know? We live the common life because we are human beings. But we also try to live our own life. We try to be an individual, think our own thoughts and, and strive after our own goals and things like that. So we exist consciously and unconsciously. We exist collectively and individually. And it's difficult to wrap your brain around that, but we're both simultaneously, not one or the other. All right, then Jung says, your heights are your own mountain, which belong to you alone. There you are individual and live your very own life. If you live your life, you do not live the common life, which is never ending. There you live the endlessness of being, but not the becoming. Becoming belongs to the heights and is full of torment. How can you become if you never are? Therefore, you need your bottom most, since there you are. But you also need your heights, since there you become. Okay, so, whew, hair standing up my arms. This, this, this uh, discussion of being and becoming, it, it mirrors the collective and individual. And it mirrors the conscious and the unconscious, like we just talked about. So now, now he's focusing on the heights, and he's saying, your heights are your own mountain. It belongs to you alone. Those are your values, your highest values. Those are your goals and expectations. Um, whatever you place at the, high, the highest for yourself, um, that's, your, those, that's your heights. Then he says that when you live that way, it's, that's different from living like a fish amongst fish. That, that's the unique part of your life, the individual part of your life. And he says, he says that it's, it's, it's necessary to have both, right? Because your depths are your being. That's where you find yourself. And your heights are your becoming, you know, what you might be. And that you are sort of both things at once. Your being and your becoming. And he says something interesting about becoming. He said, Becoming belongs to the heights and is full of torment. Now why? Why would your heights, your, your grandest goals and expectations and desires uh, and values, why would they be torment? Because they're, because they're a judge, right? Because you have to you have to work and sacrifice to achieve them. That's the torment. They're also a judge, right? Because they're an ideal. And, they, and you look at that ideal. You recognize that ideal. And what do you recognize? That you haven't measured up to it. You haven't reached that ideal. So it judges you. That's why your heights are torment. Because it requires sacrifice, work, and judgment. And you need them both. He says, you need your bottom most, since there you are. But you also need your heights, since there you become. And look, we're always transforming. We're always growing and maturing. That's a word we like to throw around. What does that mean? That's becoming. It's the process of changing into whatever it is that we're going to be. And it's not static. It's like this moving target that's always changing. 
And that's something that connects what it is to be a human being, by the way, to what it is to be God. God is something, in my opinion, that is always changing, transforming. It's transformation itself. All right, then Jung says, as a drop in the ocean, you take part in the current ebb and flow. You mount the billows of huge storms and are swept back again into the depths, and you do not know how this happens to you. You thought your movement came from you and that it needed your decisions and efforts, but you would never have achieved that movement and reached those areas to which the sea brought you. But from far off, your heights shine to you above the sea, and you become aware of yourself from afar. And longing seizes you and the will for your own movement. You want to cross over from being to becoming. All right, so what does he mean by this? This is pretty symbolic. He talks about, he talks about you being a drop in the ocean. So, and you take part right in that. He says that you participate in that somehow. And this is kind of a fractal picture that he's painting for us, and I, I agree with it. When he says a drop in the ocean, he's talking about yourself, your consciousness, your psyche, as being like part to a whole. The whole being something like the unconscious or, or cosmic consciousness or whatever you want to call God. That's, those are good, good, good enough uh, words for it as far as I'm concerned. That you're a part of that, like a drop of water in this larger ocean. And so this, this being we find ourselves in, this reality we find ourselves in is something that moves us along. You know, we, we, don't, we don't realize it. It doesn't always seem like it. But he, what he's saying is, if you're a drop in the ocean, you get swept around, you get moved around all, all over the place. You become part of storms that rage. You, you know, you become the ebb and the flow. And you think that whatever happens to you is something that you are involved in, that requires your decision and your effort. But it's not exactly true, just like the drop of water in the ocean. The ocean is doing what it's doing. And that's kind of like, that's kind of like the unconscious part of us. It's doing what it's doing, and we're not even aware of it. That's why we call it unconscious. We're not, we're not conscious of it. And so much of what happens to us and what we become is dependent on this the movement of the ocean, of this greater thing that we're a part of, this greater consciousness that we participate in, something like that. And then he says, But from far off your heights shine to you above the sea. So even though you are a fish among fish, and you're just being tossed around in this in this sea kind of against your will, for, for lack of a better word, um, that in that ocean you see your heights shining to you above the sea, pulling you to, to leave that ocean, pulling you to be your own thing, right? Something like that. Pulling you from the sea of being into something that's, that's becoming, something that's individual. And it reminds me of... Neumann, uh, who's of obviously Jung's pupil, reminds me of the way he described consciousness emerging from the unconscious. And he talks really symbolically about it. But it's like the unconscious contains the seed of, of a new God. The unconscious you might call God, and I don't have any problem with that. And it contains the seed of a new God. And that once that new God 
can stand on its own. It sort of tears itself free from this unconscious matrix that, that gave it birth. And it stands on its own as a consciousness all of its own. And that seems to be what Jung is saying when he talks about this drop in the ocean that sees the heights, its heights, shining above the ocean, calling it out of this collective existence into some individual existence, into something that it takes control of. That's what he calls becoming. That's the new God, the new self that, that, that gets to be born through a process of becoming, which requires sacrifice and work and judgment. And he describes that. He says, a longing seizes you and the will for your own movement. Right? I don't want to move with the ocean. I want to move myself. I want to determine where and how I'm going. And he says, you want to cross over from being to becoming. So it's like the impetus for transformation. And, and the birth of a, new, of a new self, the birth of a new God. Then he says, You saw that it was the life of the whole and the death of each individual. You felt yourself entwined in the collective death. Oh, you longed to be beyond. You longed for a fixed place and straight lines, for the motionlessness and firmly held, for rules and preconceived purpose, for singleness and your own intent. So this is interesting. He's talking about here this collective experience and this individual experience that we've been talking about, this being and becoming. And that if you live as an individual, it's sort of the death of your life as, a, as part of the collective. And if you sink back into the collective, it's sort of a, the death of the, of the part of you that was an individual. And that's, he says, you long to go beyond you long for fixed places and straight lines, for, for the motionless and the firmly held, for rules and preconceived purpose. What is he talking about there? He's talking about being, the opposite of becoming. He's talking about, you know, something that isn't moving, that's still and predictable, you know? The, the, the moment, the moment that we're in right now, the thing where nothing can surprise you, you know, something controlled and subdued and contained, and that's in, in contrast to the uncontrolled, to the chaotic, you know, to the potential that he, we call becoming. And people do crave the subdued, you know. We don't like surprises, <laughs> you know. But we need them. We need the unpredictable. We need that. We need the unpredictable because it leads us to our becoming, Then he says, the knowledge of death came to me that night from the dying that engulfs the world. I saw how we live towards death. He who abides in common life becomes aware of death with fear. Thus the fear of death drives him towards singleness, since in singleness he is one who becomes and has overcome death. He does not live in his individual being since he is not what he is, but what he becomes. And I decided to live within. I turned away and sought the place of the inner life. Okay. So this goes back to this idea of 
being and becoming and existing kind of both ways and also the conscious and the unconscious and existing both ways. And he said that somebody who lives the common life, you know, fish among fish, they become aware of death with fear. However, if you become aware of death, not from the perspective of being, but of becoming, you no longer fear it. And the reason is, the reason is that you find yourself identifying with the thing that transforms, the thing that always dies and is reborn. You know, it's like, why would you have fear of death if death isn't the end of you, but just a new beginning and you're going to continue, right? It's not the common life, or, or rather it is the common life that continues. So identifying with, with becoming is an interesting idea. It's like the being is kind of what we consider ourselves right now. And if you think about the, the different people you've been and who you might become, if, you, if that makes sense to you, we have big changes and, and transformations that occur in our lives. We don't no longer identify with, with the, the person we were when we were 15. We no longer identify with the person we were when we were five. You know what I mean? Um, to, imagine, to imagine that process of transformation, like what stays what stays present throughout all of those transformations, all of those selves that you've been? If you identify with that, then you don't have to be afraid of death. Now, what is that thing, by the way, that stays consistent through all of your transformations? And all of your cells died and were reborn. Right? You don't have the same body anymore at all. Every single cell is different. You don't have the same personality anymore. It's all changed. You don't have the same desires or values anymore. They've all changed. So what has stayed consistent? Because whatever that is, whatever that wispy ghost thing that we're grasping at right now, whatever that is, that's the thing that God is. That's the eternal thing. That's the thing that's, that's within all of us. And if we can identify with that thing, we no longer have to fear death. We won't fear death. And what's strange to me about that is how many, passage, how many passages in the Bible and other religious traditions say that. But, but Jesus Christ, you know, from my own, from my own Judeo-Christian background, says uh, that, that, through, that through Christ we conquer death. So you get a, you get a t- flavor of that. That brings me to vision number two. We're going to call this the anchorite. If anybody doesn't know what an anchorite is, uh, just a fancy word for like a, a monk, you know, or, or not necessarily a monk, but a, a person who lives all by themselves, singly, you know, usually in poverty, um, you know, uh, in order to become closer to God. Usually those people are monks and nuns, but they don't have to be. So vision number two, this is the last vision we're going to talk about today. Um, Jung has, and I'll give you just the paraphrase introduction. Um, Jung has a vision of a desert. He finds himself in a desert. And this has happened to him before, by the way. The last time that happened to him where he found himself in a desert, it was, it, it was supposed to represent his soul. And his soul was barren, you know, because he didn't exist in his soul. He wasn't doing what he said at the end of the last vision, where he said he decided to live within I turned away and sought the place of the inner life. So this is what he wasn't doing. 
And when he first did that and came upon his, his soul, the image of his soul, it was a desert. It was a barren wasteland. And this is kind of what we see with this vision. There's a desert. And Young is walking around in the desert. And he has no idea which way is up, no idea which way he should be walking. Um, he's walking blindly in the desert. And he eventually finds footsteps. So he follows the footsteps in the sand. And eventually he reaches a monk. He reaches an anchorite who lives a solitary life in the desert. And Young is curious about him, not only because he, he appeared in his vision, so Young knows there's something significant about them, or his unconscious wouldn't have given him this image, but he's also genuinely interested in what he has to say. He starts asking him uh, questions you know, about his religious insights, about why he ch he's choosing to live in the desert all by himself, and, and that sort of thing. And I'll start, I'll start with Young. He says... I can see nothing at all with which you could occupy yourself here. You must have read this book from cover to cover enough. And if it is the Gospels, as I suppose, then I am sure you already know them by heart. And the anchorite says, How childish you speak. Surely you know that one can read a book many times. And when you look again, certain things appear new, or even new thoughts occur that did not before. Every word can work productively in your spirit. And finally, if you have left the book for a week and take it up again after your spirit has experienced various changes, then a number of things will dawn on you. All right, I want to stop here for a second just to say, obviously, Young has encountered a monk, so he supposes if there's a book there that it must be the Gospels or the Bible, and that's what's happened but when he suggests that the monk must have read it so many times that he knows it by heart, the monk says, how childish you speak. And this is not, this happens all the time in the, in the Red Book, where the spirits, these, these unconscious things that are speaking to Young from his, from his soul, they criticize him, you know? And it's good criticism because it shows him what he needs to see, the kind of things that he's pretending and avoiding and, and repressing. But this is what happens here. The monks calls him childish for suggesting that he would know the Gospels by heart as though it wouldn't be worth reading them anymore. And he explains what, you know, is common sense, that look, as you change, if you go and reread something, it's going to have all new meaning for you. So there, it's endless, the meaning in a book, especially something like, like, you know, like a holy book. And Jung says... I have difficulty grasping this. The book remains one and the same, surely not rich enough to fill countless years. And the monk says, You are astonishing. How then do you read this holy book? Do you really always see only one and the same meaning in it? You must know one thing above all. A succession of words does not have only one meaning. But men strive to assign only a single meaning in order to have an unambiguous language. This striving belongs to the deepest layers of the divine creative plan. On the higher levels of insight, you recognize that the sequence of words has more than one valid meaning. Okay, so let's pick this apart a little bit. 
So again, the monk is, 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 he says how childish he is and says he's astonished by his ignorance, which is, again, these criticisms that are coming from Jung, you know. And he says if he, if he, he, if there's one thing that he must know above all and that words don't have only one meaning. And of course that makes perfect sense to us. We know that. But he said men strive to assign only one meaning to things. And that, of course, is true. So the question of meaning is, is difficult and interesting. It's like we know that we like things to be simple. And we like meaning to be simple. And if, you know, you see a snake and, you, and what that means to you is danger, well, that's going to keep you alive, you know. But a snake means more than danger. It means food. It means all kinds of, potentially food. It means all kinds of things. A snake reflects all kinds of truths about biology and about evolution. And, you know, it means all kinds of things. Maybe infinite things. But, but we like to make it simple. And that, that does have a lot to do with language. It's a way for us to understand each other and work together and all that sort of thing. But meaning, and this is something, maybe the only thing that I give credit to the postmodernists for, is that they point out that the meaning of words, signs and signifiers as they call them, um, that you can't pin it down. And if you try to pin it down, all the best you can do is use other words. So if somebody says to you, you know, what does a snake mean? And you say, it means danger. And they say, okay, what does danger mean? You say, well, it means fear. It means fear of bodily harm. It means uh, the potential for bodily, whatever. You can rattle off all sorts of other words, but, but I can continue to ask you, okay, what does that mean? What does that mean? Okay, what does that mean? And all you can do is point to other words. So they may be similar words, they may have similar meaning, but you can't define anything clearly. Because, because what you're doing is eternally referring the meaning to other words. So where is the meaning? You can never pin it down. Does that mean it doesn't exist? No. We know things have meaning, of course. Of course. What it means, though, is that things have infinite meaning. They don't just have one meaning. That's why you can't pin it down. Not because the meaning doesn't exist, because there's too fucking much of it. And then he says something interesting. He says, the striving, and this, this what he means by that is the striving to give one meaning to things. He said it belongs to the deepest layers of the divine creative plan. Now, I don't know what you might think that means, but what comes to my mind is the story of Adam in the Garden of Eden, because what Adam did was named all the animals and plants. Like God said, give everything a name, and that's what he was doing. So that's part of the divine creative plan that has to do with words, you know? And what was Adam doing, by the way, when he was naming all of the creatures? He was giving them some kind of reality, right? He was like, there's a lion. And until he said, you're a lion, there wasn't a lion. And in a manner of speaking, there wasn't a lion until Adam said, you're a lion. And symbolically, what that's done is it's separated from God. This thing, this, this thing that we can assign a word to, a lion, right? You separate that thing off from the whole and you give it its own individual identity. You give it its own individual existence. Even though in reality, it's all part of God. It's all part of God. You know, God's responsible for it all. And this is, this is tied to this collective and individual way that we live, that we talked about in the prior vision. And he says, on the higher levels of insight, you recognize that words have more than one meaning. 
And I think there's something deeply, deeply significant about that. That there is no end to the meaning of anything. I'll tell you what I mean by that in a minute, but I'm going to save it for a minute. All right, so I've got to paraphrase a little bit, a little bit more, just to kind of get us, get us deeper into the story. So, so this anchorite explains that the ancient philosophers create words to express meaning, but often those words are taken to have a reality of their own. So what I mean here is, if you can create a word to describe something, that there's a tendency to replace the thing with the word. Right, so you think the word has reality, but it, it's just a description. It's just a symbol of something else that has reality. The word doesn't have reality. All right. He also he also explains that when the ideas um, that that we create words to describe, when those ideas are profound or abstract or divine, that the words can also be taken as gods. Right? The words themselves can be taken as gods, and people can become a slave to words. And then he talks about, he talks about the philosopher Philo, um, who introduces the word logos that gets ad- adapted by the Jewish and Christian, tra- early Jewish and, cri- and Christian tradition. That's where uh, John uh, gets the word logos from in, in the uh, Gospel of John, where he says, uh, in the beginning was the Word. That's the logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. So this word, logos, is going to be the topic of the next bit here. And the anchorite says to Young, I ask you, was this logos a concept, a word? You see, Philo only lent John the word so that he could describe the Son of Man. John gave the meaning of the Logos, but Philo gave the dead concept that usurped life. Through this, the dead does not gain life, and the living is killed. I learned to see that John has brought the meaning of the Logos up to man. All right, so what in the same hell does he mean here? All right, so this is kind of interesting. He, said, he says something like words are, are dead. Words by themselves are dead. They have to be given life. And that, and that means meaning, right? Words have to be given meaning. They have to have meaning attached to them. And you can kind of imagine this like an idol. A word is like an idol. It has to be filled with the Spirit of God or else it's just an idol. It's not God. And this is kind of what he means when he's saying that words can be, can be turned into God's. In, in uh, our culture today, words like equity are, are slowly becoming gods, you know? They, they demand reverence and respect. They, you know, they, they demand the culture bend around them, things like that. You can see what I mean, how a word can become like that. And this word logos that, that was given by Philo is like that. It's a dead word. It doesn't have meaning until John gives it meaning, until John attaches meaning to it. So there's something interesting going on there about symbols. Um, you can imagine these symbols like, like human bodies. And they're dead unless they have a soul, unless they have a spirit. And so that there's a way in which God exists in a human being to animate that body and bring it to life. And there's a way in which God exists in symbols to bring them to life. And isn't that interesting? And he says... 
through this the dead does not gain life. He, he means by taking the word as the reality. The dead does not gain life, and the living is killed. So the spirit that's in that symbol that gives it meaning is killed. So we can't take the symbol to be the reality. We have to separate that. We have to be able to separate that. Just like they say in physics, a, a mathematical description, they, they try to say in physics, is the universe. And that's clearly not the case. A description of something is not the thing. A symbol of something is not the thing. There's something else here. All right, then he says at the end here, I learned to see that John has brought the meaning of the Logos up to man. And that's a very specific way of describing it, up to man. That means that the Logos, as the basis of being, is the most low, because it has to, it has to be brought up to man. It doesn't go down to man, right? So, so this Logos thing, this thing that, that we associate with God, and, and Jung likes to to imagine God as the most high. And what what the monk is telling him is it's the it's the most low. It's not the most high. It's the bedrock, the foundation of everything. It's not this aspiration up up at the pinnacle, up at the top. It's at the very bottom. And this is exactly what Jung has a hard time understanding. This is exactly why the first vision was with him with this destitute peasant because he has to be able to see the value in the lowest of things. He has to he he thinks of God as the highest of things and needs to be able to think of God as the lowest of things. And if that sounds to you weird, if it sounds to you blasphemous and, you know, uh, how dare you, you know, imagine God as being the lowest of things, then you're ex- in exactly the same position Young is in. You're missing something super important. God is not only the highest. He's also the depths. That's why Young needed to see the depths. Because there he can see the heights. And that's the picture. That's the big picture. The the depths and the heights together. That's something that we talk about ad nauseum on this podcast. About God being the Ouroboros. Being the union of opposites. Subject and object. right? The conscious and the unconscious together. That's what Jung is being forced to recognize. The lowest of things and the highest of things together. You can't have one without the other. As much as Jung wants to only have the highest image of God. It's incomplete. It's wrong. And then Jung says, How is that? Do you think that the human stands higher than the Logos? And the anchorite says, I want to answer this question within the scope of your understanding. The writing lies before you and always says the same, if you believe in words. But if you believe in things, in whose place words stand, you never come to the end. You must go an endless road, since life flows not only down a finite path, but also an infinite one. But the unbounded makes you anxious. Consequently, you see limits and restraints so that you do not lose yourself tumbling into infinity. You cry out for the word which has one meaning and no other so that you escape boundless ambiguity 
The word becomes your God since it protects you from the countless possibilities of interpretation. You are saved if you can say, this is that and only that. You speak the magic word and the limitless is finally banished. Because of that, men seek and make words. All right, so this is fantastic. So what he says, what he's describing here is, it's interesting. He's like, a word is something that encapsulates something that can't really be encapsulated. That's why the postmodernists point to the, to the infinite reference of meaning, the infinite deferral of meaning. So it's like a word puts constraints or walls around something that can't be constrained or walled up. Something like that. It takes something infinite and it pretends to make it finite. And that's why men seek and make words so that we take this chaotic, uh, infinite potential that we find ourselves in. The cosmos and our psyche, I could explain the same way. And we, we turn it into something that we can manage, something that we can deal with, something that we can know. And that's what he's referring to when he, when he says, the unbounded makes you anxious. No shit. No shit. If, you're, if you didn't know when your work day was going to end, if it didn't end at a certain time, you would have anxiety about it, right? When am I going to be able to go home? Jesus, when is this day ever going to end? If you're sick and you're waiting to get better, you might think the same thing. Uh, if you, you know, the point is the unbounded, the infinite does make us anxious. We don't know how to deal with that. There's something, there's something about that that is absolutely a part of us in our existence, but we, we don't have a way of integrating it exactly because we're finite creatures. We're finite beings. We can't deal with, with infinite things. And yet he says we must go an endless road since life flows down a finite path as well as an infinite one. So we need these fake walls. We need these words. We need, we need these symbols that put the infinite in a box because that's what reality is, an infinite thing. We need to put that in a box. Otherwise, he says, we risk losing ourselves and tumbling into infinity. And that reminds me again of Neumann, who talks about who talks about the unconscious being this, this this well, it's like the place of our birth and the place of our death. It's like a, a place where we can finally rest and find peace, a place where we don't have any responsibilities and there's no necessity to work and all of our all of our needs are satisfied. And we sink back into that. It's something like death. And that that lore is very, very strong. You know, that's why people commit suicide. Um, that's why people become slaves to the state. You know, um, they want, they want, uh, they want a paycheck from the state and they want to not have to work and they want to be taken care of and things like that. There's a huge allure for, for that, that unconsciousness. And we use these fake these fake boundaries to protect ourselves from that. Otherwise, we would lose ourselves in infinity. And that's something like sinking back into the unconscious, you know? All right, so I'll move on here. 
He says, he who breaks the wall of words overthrows gods. The solitary thinks and thereby breaks down ancient sacred walls. He calls up the daemons of the boundless. You cannot find the new words if you do not shatter the old words. But no one should shatter the old words unless he finds the new word that grasps more life in it than in the old. A new word is a new God. What was word shall become man. All right, so that's very, that last part in particular was very biblical sounding. All right, so let's, let's just tear this apart here. He says, he who breaks the wall of words overthrows God's. So there's some there's some some stuff about postmodernism that we could say here, but I don't I don't know if I could add much to what I already said about the um, the infinity of of meaning and um, and the fact that postmodernists point to that with words. But he who breaks down the walls of words overthrows gods. Those are the traditions and presuppositions that we accept when we hear words. You know, when we try to imagine that those words mean only one thing and not many, if you get rid of those walls, if you get rid of those borders, then what you experience is not, you know, easy. It's it's infinitely complicated and confusing and discombobulating. That's what infinity is. We want to make our meanings the opposite of that. And in truth, that's what they are. Meanings are, there's only there's only one meaning, and it's infinite and transforming. That's the truth of it. Then he says the solitary thinks and thereby breaks down ancient walls. And I think this is exactly what he means. The solitary is somebody who's not subject to the collective. It's not subject to everything that the collective presupposes. All the traditions that we rely on. If it's only you, you can think for yourself. You don't get to rely on what everybody else has thought before you. You know, your, your tradition, your culture, your ancestors. You don't get to rely on that if it's just you. And so you have to think, think for yourself. And when you do that, all of those walls, the, the words and traditions and things, they fall, they fall away. And when that happens, he says, you call up the demons of the boundless. You call up the spirit of the unconscious. You, you summon it. And then you have to come up with your own words. And he says, he says you can't do that without, you know, you can't just replace a word willy-nilly. The, on, the only way you can do that is if you find a word that does a better job of grasping the infinite meaning of it than the old word does. And that that new word becomes a new God because it becomes a new concept. It's a new way of thinking. It's a new way of being. It's a new way of... of um, uh, associating with, with yourself in the world. And he said, what was word shall become man. So obviously a new way of being and a new way of thinking is going to shape what we are and what we can become. It's going to shape our being and our becoming. Then he says, man should be light, limits, measure. The darkness does not comprehend the word, but rather man, since he himself is a piece of the darkness. Not from the word down to man, but from the word up to man. This is what the darkness comprehends. 
The darkness is your mother. Honor the darkness as the light, and you will illuminate your darkness. Only he who does not comprehend the darkness fears the night. All right, so this is the last quote before my conclusion. So let me just spend a second on this. Man should be light limits measure. So I don't know what that means to you. It's obviously poetic and symbolic, but we were talking about words being these sort of arbitrary walls that tries to encompass or encapsulate something infinite. And that infinite thing is God. It's, it's whatever's behind reality. And he, now he's talking about man in the same way. He said man should be light, limits, and measure. Those are the things that we use to encapsulate the infinite. We shine a light into the darkness. We build walls around the forest and turn it into a garden. That's how we can keep out the arrest of infinity and, and limit it to something that we can deal with. Now, Jung is saying those constraints, that's what man should be. What does that mean? It means that man is the constraint that he seeks to impose on God, on the infinite, the thing that makes God, that makes the infinite into something knowable, into being. And then he says, the darkness does not comprehend the word, but rather man, since he himself is a piece of the darkness. So the darkness, we, we can talk about that as God, as the unconscious. The unconscious doesn't recognize a word, a symbol of, of reality, but it does recognize reality itself. It recognizes man, it recognizes you and I, because we are a piece of itself. Just like he, he said earlier about being us being a drop in the ocean. We are a piece of the ocean. So what the darkness is, that's God. That's the unconscious. And we're a piece of that. He says the darkness is your mother. Right? That's why the word has to come up to man. Because darkness is our mother. We came from it. And he says, honor the darkness as the light. Honor God as yourself. And you will illuminate your darkness. You will find the God within. You will identify with it. And when you do, you won't fear the darkness. You won't fear death any longer. That brings me to my conclusion. In Young's first vision, we see a continuation of his pull towards the lowest and lowliest of things. As we've seen already in the Red Book, Young's unconscious continues to confront him with an image of God that is polar opposite to the one he prefers. Young sees God as the most high, as the absolute, as the pinnacle of reality. But the spirits within him instead show God as the bottommost, as lowly, as dark and shadowy. He hides this idea of God, buried deeply in his psyche, and holds up the grand image he most wishes to identify with. But his unconscious will not allow it. This is why he sees the filthy, destitute beggar in his vision. This is why he finds the beggar's blood on his own hands. Because he kept himself destitute by starving this part of himself. By repressing it into unconsciousness. But Jung does begin to see the importance of the beggar. 
the value in having him as a part of his self. He recognizes the value of the depths. And he says, not only as the uh, vantage needed to imagine what he might become, which he calls his heights, but also to complete his soul. He recognizes that he must embrace what he deems lowest and see himself in that as much as his highest aspiration. For both are necessary and both belong to him. The notion of uniting himself with the rest of himself, with the part he had repressed, is presented again in his second vision as the singleness of the solitary monk. The monk, in his isolation, comes to find his self in the solitude of the desert. The singleness leads to a quest, a quest to understand exactly what that singleness is. This is the deepest question of identity. If the self is to be found in unity, in the unity of the low and the high, in completion, in the unity of opposition, just what exactly is this unity? The monk answers in metaphor. He describes how words attempt to capture an ever-transforming reality in order to define it in order to make it finite and knowable. But this is merely an illusion, albeit a useful one, but it never really succeeds in capturing anything. Just as the postmodernists say that meaning of words is eternally self-referencing, the monk too recognizes an infinite transformation of meaning. The monk describes a word as a representation of something. It is never the thing itself. The reality behind a word is the same reality behind any other. What each and every word point to is the unity the image of the monk represents. The ultimate reality we try to capture in words is in motion, constantly transforming. This is why meaning transforms and why familiar books can be understood with new eyes. Because what is being described is something more like the potential for meaning, potentiality itself. This is what Jung means when he tells us that the darkness is our mother and that we are a piece of the darkness. He comes ever closer to recognizing that the thing that fills words with meaning and fills matter with life is identical to the thing we call ourself. And when we finally come to identify with the potentiality we call God, the darkness will comprehend us, and we will illuminate the darkness by filling it with the light of consciousness. The darkness and the light, the unconscious and the conscious, are the unity that man seeks and finds within itself. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.